Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, November 3rd. Election and... day in the U.S. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is a, hopefully a helpful distraction for everyone. Yep. Um, and we have an interview with Bill Brewster today. But before we get to that, we got a word from our partners, yes. Seven Investing. They just launched their new recommendations. Do you, and do you want to give the sales pitch or do you want to? I can, yeah, sure. Uh, if you use our promo code CCM at checkout, you get $10 off your first month. And it's only $7 then for your first month. And you can also use the link in our show notes. It was great. They had new recommendations that came out Sunday. They're very personable um, with the you know the clients and things like that. We love everyone there, and they're all strong analysts. Well, you know? Yeah, that was a good pitch. What recommendation did you like the most? Well, I can't give away the number, but the one I think I like the most, um, and they're all fine, so I don't want to you know choose favorites here, but I like Simon's okay. um, this month. But... I might go with Matt's on this one. Matt, okay. Yeah, very exciting we'll company. We'll, okay. <laughs> That's our tease. All right, but then before we get to that, we have our stories for the week. What are you talking about? I'm talking Cal- oh, wow. Callaway. Callaway. Um, they are merging with Topgolf, that new super range, um, very unique golf entertainment business. Interesting. And I'll be talking about uh, it's trouble at Twitter is my headline. Um, so talking a little earnings and what's going on maybe behind the scenes as well. Activists, you know. Yep. And then as always, we have our hot water buy, sell, hold. We decided to make the show family friendly now. We're changing it to buy, sell, hold. Exactly. And then we have our anecdotal evidence. Let's go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. I'm going to kick things off. This week, Twitter reported that... Um, well, most people will call them disappointing earnings. Um, they beat on revenue and earnings, as Wall Street's estimates, but their user growth was mm, uncharacteristically slow. So they have now 187 million monetizable daily active users. That's up 29% year over year. However, it's only up half a percent quarter over quarter in an election year, in an election time, and it's the run up to the election that's not really a good look and i think twitter shares were down 21 percent after this report yeah there was Um, huge drop yeah i mean that was really the highlight of the whole report was the slow user growth in an election year first question do you think that this slowdown is in reaction to the whole censorship topic Nah, i think they're just bad at um they're just bad at their business you know what I mean? They have yeah. terrible ads. Uh, the ads never work, and the user experience has gotten a lot poor. Poorer. I mean, they probably made that mistake with that New York Post thing, but it's really just they kind of botched like what they were doing. I, I didn't really look into it, but again, they're they're very bad at doing that stuff. They're making a lot of decisions that are basically unwinnable. You know, Doesn't it's it feel like they're like always a, just in the most like hectic? possible situation like, yeah well if, like you're, if you read if you read the book hatching twitter uh good book you'll understand that twitter will not be successful until all of the founders are gone and the only one remaining i believe is jack dorsey so once he leaves um soon which you'll probably get to hear next uh that it, hopefully things will turn around but if he's yeah. still there it's gonna be a mess what would you do if you were twitter i heard a lot of people mention the substack acquisition and it seems yeah. like a no-brainer at least to try i know substack might not be open to it maybe a partnership i don't know but don't you think like that's like a perfect inroad to subscriptions or yeah or you know just have a little bit of thought uh from twitter just you know make you the ability to one donate to twitter feeds you can make twitter feeds um subscription based so like you could make it just substack itself you already have way more users and you could still keep the same product as it is but you could subscribe to people and then just a little bit of innovation like that i don't know they're not not really trying a lot no they don't try anything have you seen i mean what's the last time a promoted tweet actually worked there's they're they're all they're they're so bad it's 
actually surprising how bad it is. This is all amidst Elliott Management still being an activist investor in the company. Uh, so when they first took their stake, Elliott formed a committee to determine the performance of executives, basically. I forget what they called it. But Jesse Cohn, who's a portfolio manager, manager at Elliott Management, is on this committee. He also sits on the board of directors. Their job is basically they put this committee in place to make sure really to scare Dorsey, I imagine, but it's to judge performance of the CEO. And so if they have bad performance, they write a report, it gets submitted to the board of directors and you put up for discussion whether or not Dorsey belongs there still, essentially. Yeah. And then that's hopefully going to come to um, a head, what, this winter. Um, So we'll see what happens then. It looks like he'll probably get removed. I know there's that leak from the executives that he is not even like a part-time CEO. They say he's an absent CEO, which is quite concerning, um, yeah. giving, I don't know, it just seems like his focus isn't there. It seems at Square, he's kind of focused more, um, which is his other business, and it's quite a large one, and it's where I think 90% of his wealth is, but it's just, they need new management. It's That's that's the simple thing, you know, that's it, that's it. They need new management, and they said Elliot this is so bad right now. Elliot Management said they won't take any action until January. I think them and Twitter came to an agreement on that. If you were Dorsey, would you fall on your own sword here and kind of spare the embarrassment? Or would you let the new committee submit a report that degrades you publicly? And I mean, how embarrassing would it be for Dorsey if he gets ousted publicly and then the stock shoots up like 40%? Eh, whatever. He still owns some stocks, so it'll be fine. Um, I don't think he'll be too upset. I would not want to be the CEO of Twitter, so, uh, you know, it seems like a terrible job. Wouldn't you fall and it's a terrible job. I think if he wants what's best for shareholders, you know, he'd look in the mirror and say, all right, we need new management. We haven't been doing things very well at all. And he I is saw, a shareholder. Yeah, he's a major shareholder. The uh, I saw on Twitter, someone tweeting again, this is just finance Twitter. It's where we all, you know, in the, the business uh, interact with each other. It's fantastic. I think I saw Howard Lindzen say, give me Jim O'Shaughnessy and three sports big sports, whatever, Twitter people, and we could fix this thing and make it a $100 billion company. And I didn't – I know he was kind of joking, but I think he could also do it. And my thought is, like, it wouldn't – there's a lot of managers that could come in and I think fix Twitter, at least for a shareholder's perspective, and make it way more profitable, yeah. get those um, ARPU numbers up close to Facebook or Instagram or whatever, you know, all the things that Facebook owns, which makes me think if the – Jack Dorsey is going to be fired, does not make Twitter an enticing stock. Yeah. And you don't want to do it after he's fired because then you're probably too late to the Yeah. It, story. Seem, it seems too simple, but isn't this the time? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean I was I I was thinking about pitching it off the show, but I mean it seems like a good idea. Like I think we're in agreement. We gotta do some more research then. All right, what's your story? Okay, it is Callaway buying Top Golf. Uh, if you don't know, Callaway is one of the big brands in the golf equipment space. Uh, so think of them, you know, TaylorMade, Tidelist, uh, Nike's in there a bit. Uh, they're merging with Top Golf in an all stock deal, values Top Golf at $2 billion, and Callaway already owned 14%. So they're getting, um, they're paying for the rest, the 86%, and it's all in Callaway shares. So shareholders are getting diluted. Um, probably about half just a little under half of their current shares and so stockholders were not very happy Uh, the i mean the stock was down like 20 percent, and that's going to happen when they're taking on a lot of debt they're taking over 500 million dollars in debt from top golf and they're also you know diluting shares and you don't really know the ins and outs of top golf's business maybe that's a business people didn't want to be in but it's it's a high growth business. I mean, they had 1.1 billion dollars in sales in 2019. That was growing 30 percent on a compound annual growth rate over this the last three years. Top golf. Top golf. Yeah. Don't know what the margins are looking like there because we haven't had any insights. Um, Top golf only has 63 locations, which seems like they're getting a lot of revenue from each location. And you, I mean, they're not going to be able to have thousands and thousands of them across the U.S. or even internationally maybe like 250 in the United States, but they're still not saturated yet. They also own Top Tracer technology, which is in 7,500 ranges. It kind of tracks people's swings, you know, mm-hmm. or tracks ball flight, all that type of deal in real time. So that's very useful and I think could be a high margin business. And they also have a mobile golf game with 28 million users. So does the deal 
interest you at all. I mean, it's not. It feels like there's much less synergies than you'd think. Like it's less, two or really? very different customer demographics, in my opinion. Because Callaway, I assume the bulk of their revenue comes from people that really enjoy golfing, like 18 holes, nine holes. They take it seriously. They buy the equipment. They're constantly buying new clubs, new clothes. Top golf is like people that want to get drunk and hit a few golf balls. Yeah, I mean it's inclusive, so it's made for corporate events or parties and things like that. So even non-golfers can go. Um, Top Golf did mention that fifty percent of their customers are not avid golfers, but that means fifty percent of them are. Uh, so I think that's. I mean, it makes sense. But they all Callaway also owns um, OGO Brands, which is like backpacks and golf equipment. And then they own two lifestyle um, clothing companies. They're more like outdoor facing. Uh, and I think that could help. They could sell those at the locations. But in reality, the w- reason they're doing this is Top Golf is, you know, growing quickly, but it may not have the balance sheet. Um, I know that Callaway has about $630 million in cash currently, including their credit facilities. Um, they've been hurt a little bit by the pandemic, but it's also, I don't know. It's things, it seems like Top Golf will be the majority of this business going forward. And $2 billion is a little pricey, and it's quite, it's a big bet. But I think that, I don't know, having Callaway as the, like, with all the customers at Topgolf, I think they have $23 million annually. If Callaway is the prime brand there, I think that's a lot of eyeballs on, on um, all the stuff. I, I, that, sure. That has to work, right? If they're, you know what, if they were just blatant about it and said, like, hey, we think Topgolf's a really good business. We think they can expand nationally which i do i like going to top golf but i'm also not an avid golfer um and they also have this other side of their business the top tracer technology that they think is going to be good that's fine if they start selling everyone on synergies like we're going to start selling stuff callaway stuff in the pro shop there then i might get a little concerned because i think they might spend maybe too much money trying to merge the businesses i'd rather them just be like yeah we're taking a stake in a good business well i mean what, what how much money could they waste I don't know, but I just don't see the synergies. Like you spend money trying to integrate two businesses together. I think I disagree because if fifty percent are avid golfers, they don't say are avid golfers. They say fifty percent are not. So fifty yeah, so percent other... could be like, yeah, we kind of like it. Yeah, but no, fifty percent is not not real like traditional people that golf a lot, and fifty percent of the people that are buying the you know the equipment. You know, there's yeah. some people that are going in tennis shoes. Half are going in tennis shoes, and half have golf shoes, and. I think that's a big opportunity. That's over 10 million customers that could potentially be buying golf balls, bags, coats, everything, clubs, putters, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Wouldn't you rather see Callaway go like direct to consumer and like spend most of their money focusing on their digital experience? I haven't like tried it. Golfing is different because you got to test out. If you're doing balls shirts balls pants. and shirts are fine but if you're doing clubs which is the the big dollars that you need to test in person so the thing that's what could be the benefit there is you could do all the testing of clubs because it's really a it's a personal fit and and at least in my experience i've had um negative uh, buying a golf club off amazon wasn't a good experience for me i got a terrible club so you think they could sell the clubs at Top Golf successfully? Yeah, or just have testing centers and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of people going to these places, and yeah, I think there's just potential there. There is a lot of potential to mess it up, um, and they got to get it right. But yeah, maybe that's like their replacement for the sports authorities or the Dick Sporting Goods. Like this is just how you get people towards your clubs. Yeah, I mean that is direct to consumer now. Technically, it doesn't. It's not online, but yeah. it is. It is a retail location now owned by Callaway. Okay, current state of FinTwit. Um, I just have one note. Okay, uh, yeah, I think one of mine was Twitter, so I guess I only have two. Okay, so did you see this stuff about a Columbia Business School hedge fund type oh, yeah. of thing, like? It was one of mine too, yeah. Yeah. So Very funny. This well, guy wrote a Substack piece. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he wrote a Substack piece. Mar- Mario. Mario Gabriel. About good or, compounding yeah. businesses and referenced the word compounders apparently. And basically this uh, hedge fund said that a lot of the work was plagiarized and mm. that they coined the term compounders. Nice. Uh, which is it was mind-blowing. To, to <laughs> yeah, say it least. was – ridiculous um i don't know if it was a blunder or like what word would you coin what i coin 
uh, buy the BTFD, <laughs> right? <laughs> buy the dip? Well, yeah, no, right. no, not BTD, BTFD, right? Yeah, but we're family friendly now. Yeah, well, so I thought we BTF. no, we can swear, right? We can still swear, but yeah, buy the yeah. buy the fucking dip. But okay, <laughs> people, yeah. Um, but any uh, current state of Fintwit for you? Uh, okay, I had that one, so I guess we'll move on to my next one. Uh, oh yeah, Steve Cohen, um, the guy that is a famous mm. hedge fund manager who was in. Um, the crosshairs of the SEC and all those people that you know look yeah. look uh, after. It's kind of like billions. Um, he's one of the people based off of him. He has 38 likes on his Twitter, and they're quite strange. Um, he hasn't tweet ever, but he liked something about Elon Musk's <laughs> Twitter meltdown. He liked some viral tweet about uh, dating apps and serial killers, and he liked something about trends and bends it's uh since airing nationwide researchers report a striking new approach to fitness over 50 so steve might be trying to get in shape uh, <laughs> is this but... the guy that just bought the mets yeah that's what i said yeah the and guy that just bought the does mets. he also own the carolina panthers no that's david tepper okay All but right. there was a good um well i think it was resurfaced in 2010 i forget who tweeted it but there's a funny article about david tepper who owns the carolina panthers in the midst of the financial crisis uh, there's a bunch of funny things about him buying a $50 million house just to smite the Goldman Sachs guy that wouldn't make him partner. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you could say as a little form of justice. But then they also talked about how back in his old days, I guess it's a little bit of a tangent, but I can't keep forgetting about this line. He said, um, what was he yelling at one of his analysts? And he said, you know what a schmuck looks like? Find a mirror. Like he was yelling. I assume it was in a little bit of an angrier tone, but I can't, uh, I can't imagine it was um, stress-free working for that guy. Yeah. And Steve Cohen as well. Yeah. All right. Well, next we have an interview with Bill Brewster. What was sort of your highlights? Yeah, we focused on Robin Hood. Um, we are anti-Robin Hood here. And he, nice. you know, nice he has a story. Yeah, he has a story about that as well. And I don't know. We kind of agreed on some things. But he also brought to light some of the slightly um, manipulative ways that they go about forcing or not forcing people, nudging people into being traders. And yeah. I had come up with some on my own, um, on my own, but he had some things I hadn't even thought about before. Yeah. And I, I think we tried to go out at, uh, at it in sort of a proactive way of how can maybe they alter the service to make it better. Um, and I thought he had some good insights on that as well. So here you go. <laughs> Okay, today we are welcomed by Bill Brewster. Um, you may know his voice from Value After Hours, uh, familiar voice to us. We've listened to the show a few times, um, but let's get started with your investing career. Where, how'd you get started? When did you get started? And what do you do now? Uh, I guess I got interested in the markets in 98 um, at high school. I was in high school and everybody in the library was day trading, uh, it seemed like. And I went to school with some kids whose dads, uh, you could follow what they were selling. So that was sort of fun. And then we'd talk to the kids in class or whatever. Um, so that was sort of my introduction to the markets. And then, you know, lived through 2000, went to college and was sort of taught a lot of the efficient markets hypothesis and didn't really believe that, uh, especially considering what we'd just gone through. Um, got out. And didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went to law school and then sometime along then stumbled into some Buffett and, uh, and also, um, Bogle, right. The Vanguard guy right. and the, the Buffett stuff sort of talked to me a little bit more than Bogle and that, that began the progression. So I've been following the markets for a long time. I would say I've been doing this sort of professionally for probably about five years and I've been competent for maybe three. Okay. And then what it like presuming that I'm confident, competent now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, what, uh, so what do you do now? Do you manage, I think you said you manage your family's money. Um, do you do anything? Yeah. Else it's just, that? yeah, it's just family. I don't really, cool. I don't know where I want to take it. Um, so we'll see. All right. That sounds good. What, uh, what would you describe your style and philosophy as? I know you're a Buffett, um, acolyte, I guess I could say, uh, you yeah. follow them a lot. Is that kind of how you do it? Or is there a little bit of a mix with something else? No, I think, um, I, I think I get into, I, I definitely don't run it like, like he does, uh, like my portfolio. I think he's, he's much more waiting for a certain bet than I am. And I think I'm 
willing to take a little bit more of a flyer on certain ideas. Uh, but that's just maybe a function of where we are in the market cycle and some lessons that I've learned over this time that, um, you know, maybe he's a pretty smart guy. So fading his strategy isn't necessarily the best. The, the problem that I have for myself with his strategy is I don't think there are that many opportunities in the market to put as much money as he would be comfortable putting when he was young. And like, I don't really have the risk tolerance to go 50% a position or something like that. So I don't, um, there's, I've tried to borrow from his sort of ethos of weight and swing at a fat pitch or your perception of a fat pitch and then swing big when you swing. But my definition of big and his are probably quite a bit different. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to repeat um, what he did. Cause it's, it's not like, I mean, he's, you know, we all know he's a once in a generation type talent with investing, but how do you specifically source ideas? I mean, what does the process look like from say, all right, I found this new company or a company I've been following. And then how do you get to where you're comfortable with buying the security? I don't really have a great answer to this question other than uh, like a whole lot of work. Um, yeah. You know, my sourcing is sort of, I built up a network of people that I bounce ideas off of. And, you know, we just talk about what we're seeing every day. Um, some, some things click really quickly. Some take a long time to get to. Uh, I guess that the things that, I don't know. Uh, I'm just thinking back. I guess the things that have clicked a little bit quicker have probably worked a little bit easier. So maybe that's a bit of a takeaway. Okay. Um, how does, but, how does FinTwit help? Does, do you find any negatives or positives with that? I, well, I mean, I love the people there. Um, I, I went there because I left a commercial banking career and I didn't want to just disappear. And then if what I'm currently doing didn't go well or whatever, I didn't want to come out of the woodwork and tell people like, Oh, I promise I've been working for three years. Right. It was sort of a way to stay somewhat relevant for me. Um, and then it turned into an idea sharing um, platform. And I think now it's sort of the place that I sourced my network for the most part. I don't, um, I'm not sure how positive it is for my brain and like actually developing investment theses. And a, a lot of the comments are like very, very hot takes that aren't very well thought out. Some are very good, but I think more often than not, the magic happens in direct messages than on FinTwit. Right. And I think, yeah, people are sort of forced to have takes on certain companies and it's, I don't, maybe I have like the wrong followers or the following, but it feels like it's become a lot more cheering for your stocks and a little less analytical as of late. Yeah. We're the, we say that we're anti-rocket ship emojis, you know, just because the stock's doing well, but yeah, that makes sense. Um, um, we do want to talk about or Robin hood, um, yeah. sort of, uh, cause you've been sort of vocal about, um, the gamified experience, I guess. Uh, what are some of the issues you have with the sort of easy access brokers? Cause that's sort of what they've touted their service as, uh, what are some of the issues that you've noticed? Yeah. Well, I mean, to begin, I lost a family member to suicide. Um, that was, it, they may not I, I don't, the causation is difficult to argue, right? There, right. Uh, but um, at a minimum, I think they played a fairly large role in uh, the incident happening and the way that I would argue that, uh, you know, they should have foreseen what, would, what was going to happen is I don't think that you can have growth like they have and then also have the, like, it's pretty clear, at least from my inbound messages and some news stories about the platform going down. Like, it's one thing if you're growing as a social media platform and your platform goes down, like, no one really cares. Right. But if you have options trading on your platform, the idea that your platform would go down or you wouldn't have sufficient customer service, like, I don't care if it's Robinhood, I don't care if it's TD, that is absolutely not acceptable especially when 
options are the primary way that it appears they're getting paid. I'm not sure that that's factual, but I've seen news stories and it seems by reading how they're compensated. I mean, options are very, very fast moving. So the idea that they wouldn't have sufficient infrastructure to handle the requests um, is like very short-sighted. And I mean, I, I think that's a pretty egregious oversight on their part. Right. And then the options specifically, have you, I mean, is this a big issue where, so I go on Schwab um, and you have to get actually approved for different levels of options trading and you actually get denied. But when, at least in personal experience, when we go on Robinhood or one of the, you know, day trading um, apps that are currently very popular, you get, you apply to get approved, but we had a thousand bucks in the account and you get approved immediately. It seems like there's no vetting process. Is that something that could help with that? Uh, yeah, that's pathetic. Right? There should I mean, be some restrictions. Yeah. yeah, no, that's crazy. And the idea that somehow that's democratizing what the wealthy do is a laughable concept. Right. Uh, the wealthy are not day trading options. Like you're out of your mind. If you're not, They're not out of their minds. When I've seen that quote in papers, it's driven me nuts because what the wealthy do is they invest in the firms that back Robinhood to make money off the people that are day trading options. The wealthy are not day trading options, yeah. right? The wealthy are the VC and the PE funds and their LPs. So like this idea of, you want to democratize investing? Let people invest in those funds. That's right. democratizing investing. Selling people that don't know better financial dynamite is not democratizing investing. It's turning the market into gambling. Right. And then what, so yeah, restricting options seems like an easy strategy. Are there any other, you know, how can they go about solving these issues? Does regulatory bodies need to come in? Um, is this new management need to come in or do the incentives need to change? Like, or, or just a combo of all those? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not sure that regulation proves to much in right. in most industries that I've seen that regulation comes in, it usually entrenches the incumbent. I'm not sure that that's the answer here. I do think there is some. I don't know if it's the SEC. I don't know if it's Congress. There's some oversight body that probably needs to figure out what the 21st century looks like, and you know uh, the interplay of. On one hand, we do want people to invest. On the other, like I don't use Robinhood. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm never going to use them. I don't ever want to use them. Um, what I have heard from people that use it is like finding a low cost ETF is not easy. Finding options trading is super easy. When you look at how they're paid, it would make sense that they would drive you to options and margin. Options and margin happen to be the most dangerous financial products out there if you're in the market. So like that incentive system seems a little bit screwy to me. And, you know, like, yes, on one hand, you're not getting charged a commission. On the other, like, is that actually a good thing? You know, there's, there's plenty of studies out there that show that overtrading results in very bad results for the investor. There's a lot of studies that show that load funds do, like investors in loaded funds, right, where you have to pay to get in, do better than, than, funds with no load because there's friction to buying. So like maybe finance is a place that friction should exist. And right. maybe like reducing friction in every case is not the best thing, even though it seems to be something cute that everybody says these days. Yeah. I yeah. I agree. And there's basically two business models that the brokerages can go with and it's either charge for it commissions or don't charge up front and sell the order flow. And if you're doing the latter, then you essentially are, your goal is to drive volume, which is not, it's not good for the investor's side. So I think, I think you might be right in that regard. Friction I am right. I'll, that, I'll ask you this. Do they have push notifications for anything? Yeah. Robin hood. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they do. That's Only absurd. When... That is fucking crazy. Part of well, my we... language, but that is. The... We're, yeah, we're, it's okay. We're, uh, we're cool with swearing, so no worries. But no, when we used Robinhood, um, we both have switched back over to Schwab because we realized it's better for investing. But when we had Robinhood, they only get push notifications if a stock is up or down 5%. So it's even, so that's like the- I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? Okay, great. So earnings came out and you get a push notification that your stock's moving. Like to me, 
if you're building a tool that that in that you are incentivized to get paid on order flow, it's probably a good idea to induce a push notification when the stock is moving around a lot and somebody is at an emotional high. Yeah. Like what's the probability that the person receiving the push notification on a big up or down day is rational when they get that push notification? Yeah, I'd argue I think, pretty low. Yeah. And I think they probably run the same sort of, um, they call them, I think, A-B tests over at you know social media companies where they probably learned that if they give a push notification, it pushes the user to act, which generates more revenue for Robinhood. Um, yeah. And that's just that bad incentive structure. Is I there- mean, look, the way that I see it, Okay, and this is like where my beef comes from. You name your company Robinhood, right? What is the mental association that you're trying to engender? Like we're robbing from the rich and we're giving to the poor. Great. Okay. So how are you actually doing that? Well, you're incentivizing overtrading in options. How many wealthy people got wealthy doing that? Very, very few. And when you sign up, like I signed up to see what it is. And I'm not saying traders, like there's a group of traders that, that Robinhood is probably great for but they're not the masses. Yeah. And, you know, I signed up and there's three tiles. Pick your, you know, as a reward for, for signing up, pick your, your stock reward or whatever that we're going to give you. It looks like a raffle ticket. And then they said, hey, now put your finger to the phone and scratch this raffle ticket off, right? To figure out your random stock reward. What percentage of people want the stock that they're getting? Probably- yeah, I mean- what Ryan, Chesapeake Energy? Ryan got Chesapeake Energy for three right. bucks. So how quickly did it did you sell that? Um, as soon as I could. Right. So is that investing or is that turning you into a trader from the jump? Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I didn't think of it like that. Yeah, man. I, these yeah. guys know psychology. Yeah. Like, come on. The I whole mean, thing is is set up to turn people into traders, not investors. So then, then say we're democratizing investing. Fuck no, you're not. You're trying to turn people into traders. And that's what bothers me. It's the hypocrisy behind it. Yeah. And I think if people are making the argument- If I sound like, passionate, I'm sorry. I, I lost a lot to that platform and yeah. it's hard for me not to. No, no, we agree. I mean, we're- I think, we're, yeah. Yeah. Wall Street, it, just take one look at Wall Street bets and it demonstrates sort of the nature of what goes on on Robinhood because- and. If you're using it for a tiny portion of your money to gamble with and maybe, I don't know, like scratch that itch. Yeah. Scratch that itch with a few hundred bucks. That's fine. You know, but I I think they're encouraging some, (laughs) some bad behavior. Is there any way that you could see this democratizing finance concept work without taking it too far? Yeah. I think if they designed, like if they truly looked in the mirror and they like designed a platform that they wouldn't mind their kids investing on with no knowledge of options, they'd probably have a great platform. Right. I don't know why they don't do it. Yeah. It'd probably be worth a ton of money. Yeah. I mean, they could, one thing I was thinking of is they launched crypto selling, which their UI for that is quite um, interesting to say the least, uh, how they make it seem like a video game, but they didn't have dividend reinvestments and they haven't launched any IRAs or Roth IRAs, I guess. And they don't have any like robo advisory things. These, you know, seem like something that a tech focused firm, excuse me, could do really well. And that could actually help democratize finance for people that, you know, don't qualify for 401ks or all that type of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, forget about Robinhood for a second, but generally this payment for order flow model that is going on and this whole like, you know, no commissions is good for people. Overtrading is not good for people. Yeah. Like it just isn't. So in order to change it, you, you have to be willing to take a hit. And I, I mean, if it's Schwab, they got the same problem that Robinhood does. You have to take yeah. a step back in order to go forward. And there aren't that many companies that are willing to do that. And I suspect, like, you know, in the public markets, you're going to get a stock hit. I doubt that Robinhood's backers really want them to pull back on the throttle, I suspect they're saying go full bore so that we can IPO. Right. And I mean, Schwab was able to do that because they had Schwab Bank. And I mean, I think trading revenue only made up around like 8% of the top line. And they also sell order flow, but it makes up a very small portion of their overall top line. Other brokerages can't do that. So they have to rely on selling the order flow, which you're, the only way you increase revenue is to encourage more trading. And it just feels like it's an, an inherently bad way to generate money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, 
I, <laughs> over trading isn't good. I don't care what, I mean, find me a study that says that people do better over trading. And then, you know, it, if you're saying that their video, like their a trading platform in crypto feels a little bit like a video game. I mean, addicting people to the markets is really not a good concept, yeah. right? Like the markets, people do better in the markets when they think long-term and they buy something and they think about owning the business. Like people that are in the business aren't addicted to their private market valuation all the time. And how much is it moving around and getting a push notification if somebody you know, tells them one day that it's up 5%, like it's, it encourages insane emotional behavior. How much of that do you think comes down to just like in a really pretty user interface? I don't, I mean, I, you know, I think that they have, like, they have obviously got a slick platform. You know, I don't think you can grow that quickly without something that's like fun to deal with, but um, you know, casinos are fun to go to too. I'm not sure that yeah. everyone casino on the phone. Right. Right. Yeah. Do we have any more? Yeah. If you had, if you got to make one change to their service, what would it be? I don't know. I mean, look, I, I think that um, their founder, the letter that they released after the incident that I went through with them, if they actually invest, I, I'll tell you what I would do. I would have customer service representatives that could pick up a phone. And I know that they think that that wouldn't change, but I know for a fact that when my cousin-in-law wrote the letter that he wrote, he was sitting at his phone looking at it like 1130 on, at night on a Thursday. Uh, I suspect he probably tried to reach out to somebody given what I know about that platform. There, uh, People wrote me all the time. They were like, these guys take five days to respond. You cannot have an options trading platform that people do not get responses immediately. It can't happen. And yeah, we saw it with the like accounts getting hacked the other week. Where uh, it took 14 days or seven to 14 days to respond for there was, I think, a few dozen people that lost or had uh, upwards of $10,000 stolen from their account. Um, I mean, that's and egregious it has as well. The withdrawal period. So you had time to realize like someone's taking the money out and they, they were trying to get in touch and there's no customer service rep. I know it hurts your margins, but it's going to help your business in the long run. Yeah. I would think, especially if like, if I ran that company, I would want to enter ancillary financial products, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that's the next iteration of where I think that thing goes. I, I mean, you got to have trust. Like this right. is finance. It's not Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. You can't use the same tactics that the social media companies have used because it's a whole different thing. It's people's retirements that are at stake. Yeah. And, and the thing that like sort of, really like gets me offended is if people are going there as an alternative to wall street and then they're let down by that yeah <laughs> then 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 when do they invest then they don't trust anybody and, and what does the world look like if a generation of people don't invest that's true and what's the new service where you can like mimic influencers trades there's yeah like it's called eToro. i think it's only in the united kingdom right now but there's it seems a little sketchy there's like 30 million dollars following a guy's trades um he's just an anonymous person too that seems like another step in the wrong direction right. um and that that has seemed very very risky yeah i mean there's you know uh, something that's beautiful about the world we live in is the sharing of information has is sort of, you know, all the barriers are eroded, right? It's mm -hmm. the merit of your ideas. And um, I do agree that like options trading should not only be available to millionaires or whatever. Like I fundamentally agree with that. If you have the sophistication, you should have access to financial products that can make you wealthy. On the other hand, you know, if there's no way to look at the customer growth that they have and also think all those people are, are sophisticated. Like it just can't happen. It, th there aren't enough people that are that sophisticated. So uh, that's sort of where, you know, I, I, I just think that the argument falls flat for me. Yeah. I mean, I guess like there's gotta be some sort of vetting process, whether it's like, tests quizzes something to know if you understand what you're trading before being able to do it 
and they should make limits on super ahead of the money um, options oh, like true. other brokerages do um, where, you know, you, we could go into our Robinhood account and buy some very speculative things. You go on Schwab or the other ones um, that are the legacy players and you can't, um, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. Let's, uh, we want to, yeah, yeah we get on, move, I, unless you have anything else. No, no. I mean, you know, I, I, I want younger people to, to invest. I want, people to find finance interesting i've heard that they do like hip-hop updates and stuff like that like i think that's cool i think innovation in the space is cool i don't want to be some stodgy old guy on the other hand i just you know i think a lot of this is marketing bs to drive revenue to rich people and i find it offensive when it's called robin hood Right. Yeah. I think that's a good way to close that part out. But our next segment is going to be a little bit about the aerospace industry. I know you're very oh. interested in that um, fun, exciting fun. market, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's certainly uncertain times. Yeah. So the aerospace parts market is something you've talked about a lot. Um, what is appealing to some of those companies? And do you have any specific examples of anything you're looking at? Yeah. Well, I just think like if, if you're interested in it, people should study like Transime and Heiko. Um, they're really cool companies. And, you know, I just think it's, it's just another version of razor razor blade models, uh, where the Heiko is different, but Transdime, you know, it's highly engineered parts and they're trying to, you basically on a platform, right. Until, so say you're, you're approved for the 737, um, I, I the max too, right. Like you've got to go through getting everything through the FAA, is not easy and it's never going to be easy. Like the idea that that is going to become less regulated is laughable. So once you're there and you've like Transdime invests so much in R and D on the front end, people hate what they charge on the back end. But the other side of that is like, these guys should have a reasonable return on their money. And maybe people don't like what they make on the back years of what they have developed. Um, that got them in trouble with Congress. But, you know, when, if you read the congressional testimony that they had, um, Nick Howley said, you know, go find another supplier, you know, supplier. And the fact of the matter is it's not really economical for somebody to rebuild what Transdime does on the front end because the market's just not really big enough. So it's just sort of a very cool niche that they've played in. And I, I think if you're interested in business and sort of like figuring out parts of the value chain that get a lot of money, when you look at aerospace in general, there aren't that many parts of the value chain, despite how much money flows through it. There aren't that many parts that sort of earn outsized returns. And Transdime tends to exploit one of those parts. And then Heiko is almost like the Costco version of that. So they'll, they'll do less highly engineered parts. They will come in and, and try to um, give people an option that's lower cost but they also have this strategy where they're not going to take so much market share that the people that make the parts get mad and sort of retaliate against them. It's just like, it's very cool niches within a business. Okay. And uh, then are they, they're selling to the airlines, right? So they're not having a relationship with Boeing. It's like after Boeing or another, or Airbus, I guess the two, they sell their airplanes. This is on the back end where they're working with like Delta United. Transdime? Yeah. Is that well on the is? front end, on the front end, when it's getting manufactured, they right, work it, with them. Okay. It, yeah. But then on the back end, the airlines or uh, MROs, maintenance repair organizations, like they, you know, it's whoever needs the part at, okay. a, at a certain point. So is there a concern that Boeing may have a lot of, you know, monopoly power in that? Does that, has that affected them in the past or? No, I mean, look at their margins. Now, Boeing might look to insource some of that stuff, but, you know, getting Boeing to move, is not the easiest thing in the world. Yeah. How has uh, how has less travel volume affected Transdime? Um, so they are certainly the more that a plane flies, you have uh, like miles flown is going to impact how quickly the parts are replaced. So this has not been a good, uh, you know, it, it, it hasn't been a good time for them. What I would say is, I, however hard it has been for them, it's been harder for the smaller guys. So they have enough liquidity to get through this. I think that there's a good chance that they make an acquisition or two on the back end of all this. But you know, the longer it goes on, it's not a it's not an ideal situation to say the least. Right. 
Um, another uh, thesis or uh, space that you uh, had companies in was airlines, if I'm not mistaken. And then you yeah. sold in early March. Am I getting yeah. right? Yeah. What, what was sort of your thesis before you ended up selling? And then what would it take for you to own the airlines again? Uh, well, the thesis was that they were healthier than they'd ever been. And that, you know, when four of them carry 80% plus of the seats, there's at least rational pricing power. Um, there, I, I never bought the argument that they were so consolidated that they could make outsized profits because an airline seat is still a commodity. I don't know what it would take to get me back in. It would be, um, I'm not too eager to do it. Is there, right. is there anything they can do that would make you eager to do it or would it have to be basically travel volume getting back to where it was? No, I mean, here's the problem. All of a sudden, so if you study the history of the industry, uh, a lot of debt and smaller fleets is not a great combination. And when they were all well capitalized and there was not a lot of incentive to, um, you know, necessarily cheat, uh, not, not, I mean, it's, it's very competitive. So I don't want to act like there's certain routes that they can extract a ton from because that's not what it is. But the debt makes me nervous. I guess if somehow their balance sheets were good again, I would maybe consider buying, but I really wouldn't because by then you're probably late in the cycle. And I mean, now is probably the time to buy them, but you're you just taking a on more stomach. Risk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, there's, there's good ones, right? But uh, Southwest going forward is not the Southwest that you looked at in the past. And uh, it's tough. Allegiant and Spirit would be the two that I'd look at first. Oh, going to the uh, the bottom of the barrel, huh? Yeah, oh, well, it's yeah. a good model. Like right. at the end of the day, people buy tickets based on price. And leisure and point to point is the first that's going to bounce back. I think business travel... It's very, very hard to argue to me that business travel is going to come back quickly, especially long haul business travel. So that's a good point. That's where I would play. All right. We've got a wrap up. I'm question. not telling people to play that. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a scary not game. A, not investment advice at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we'll hit the wrap up questions here. Uh, we have one extra uh, because you have your show that you've been doing, I think, for at least 18 months or so Value After Hours with Tobias and yeah. Taylor. I don't know that it's that long. I think it's maybe a year. Yeah. And then yeah. it's called value after hours. What value has that provided you? Oh man, it's been fun. Uh, I like it. I, I, I really, I mean, I respect Toby. I think like his book deep value, I think is a very, very, very good book. So deep value is an excellent book. And then I, and then to be able to get to know Jake better uh, we we've all known each other for a while. I mean, we met at Berkshire and went out and got sauce together and it was a lot of fun. There you go. Um, but you know, now this is sort of like a weekly reason to get together and it's been fun. Yeah. I mean, we learn a lot from that and I think, yeah, having yeah, that discussion each too. week. Yeah. It's terrifying to know how smart the listeners are on the other end. Right. Yeah. I, get, I get pinged about stuff and I'm like, ah, oh, man, I wish I didn't say it that way or. Yeah. Know, here. Yeah. I you have the ink. This guy, you know, yeah. is listening. Yeah. 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 You always, you always joke that, um, what Greenblatt's listening, right? Oh yeah, well I I like to say that anyone's listening that's on my mind. Munger, right. what's up? Um, yeah, Munger. Yeah. Hey is. Charlie, I know you follow me around, right? He's yeah. listening to this. I'm sure. All right. Uh, one more wrap up question, or we got uh two more. Uh, first one: What is one financial saying that you disagree with? Hmm. I don't like this whole narrative of buy companies and make you feel good right now. I think that that's bound to add and badly. What is that? I, well, what is that specific? That yeah, that I don't know. I just think like there's way too much of this. Um, oh, think about the options far out into the future and buy a company that no. makes you feel good. And I like, I mean, I get it. I get it. I, I think that if if that mentality helps you hold through really tough times or helps you hold long term, then maybe it can work. But I think it's gone way too far and people need to remember that like valuation does matter eventually. Price, price matters. And yeah. I, I get it. The whole, like you want to own something that you're proud to own, but Ultra is the greatest performing stock of all time. And 
there's a reason for it. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't just because maybe you're not proud to own Altria doesn't mean you can't get good returns. It also doesn't mean you're advocating for the product, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, on the secondary market, like, I mean, I guess you could argue that in theory, if you think that Altria needs to raise a secondary offering that you're supporting the price that they would, they don't need to. Yeah. Yeah. For us, you are only exploiting a condition of the world right now if you're buying the stock. Right. Yeah. In my a, opinion. Yeah. If a company has to survive on cash flows, then you're you're really not doing anything. But if it's say someone like Shopify, um, yeah, you may be giving them a sort of an advantage if you're you know thinking they're changing the world for a better place. And I mean, yeah, I think they are. That's yeah. what's this idea of being proud of what you own is what leads to your sort of irrational electric vehicle valuations like we had with Nikola however long ago. Yeah. I mean, because everyone wants to own the, I mean, ESG is popular now, but I don't know. It seems. Yeah, you do. It seems like it's led to some irrational valuations. There's it always objectively some- has. I just don't know which ones are that irrational, but I know that there's some out there that are. Yeah. All right. Well, our last question that we always ask is one piece of advice for anyone that's wants to make a career out of investing. So I think that's perfect for you. Uh, don't overtrade would be one. You know, I think I I do think I think the most important thing that Buffett says is, you know, it it takes a whole life to build a reputation in five seconds to ruin it. And, you know, I I I hope that people know that when I say something, I don't I mean, I do care if I'm wrong, but like, I don't really care if I'm wrong. I care if people think that I'm saying it to like pump my book. I get offended, like I get pissed when people say that because that's not what I'm in this for. Uh, plus I don't have the ability to sway the market cap of any of these things, but you know, if, if you did, or like, like outright, uh, fraud or anything like that, I mean, I know that it's sort of silly to say, but, um, that stuff will stick with you and and you can never shake it. Like your integrity is everything. All right. All right. Well, that's all the questions we have. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Had a great time. Thanks for having me. Okay, welcome back in. Thanks again to Bill for coming on the show. Enjoyed that interview. But next we have hot water. I have three. Okay. You kind of like mine. Go ahead. Okay, so we're in hot water because Jerome Powell apparently has a Twitter burner account. Um, We've said that before that just because people on Twitter like a stock doesn't make it consensus. Does this change your thinking at all? <laughs> that the Fed chairman is like sitting there on Twitter for stock tips? Yeah, uh, I mean, he people joke about him affecting the market. Um, in individual stocks, he may affect it a little bit less compared to maybe just the broad indices. But yeah, I mean, you're the one that I. You're more on the side of that Twitter is more of a little bit of a finance bubble, and you don't want to get caught to that. I think it's a little more consensus than people think. Um, even if it is only 10% of people in finance on there, uh, that I don't think is like, it doesn't mean it's not statistically relevant. Cause I'm picturing like, why would he have a Twitter burner account other than like memes of himself, uh, other than to like sort of gauge consensus, like gauge what the like thought process is of most investors and just, uh, just angrily troll QTR or whatever. He probably has an egg and then he's just in, uh, quote the ravens mentions all who the time do, who do you think his burner account is his burner uh <laughs> is that dude, I, I think it, it can't be one that's popular because he wouldn't want to do that to expose himself it's probably not following anyone or not tweeting very much it's just on there like one you know an egg just following people. okay uh second one here costco's in hot water this week costco stated that they will no longer stock uh the coconut milk products from their thai distributor amid allegations that they are using monkeys as forced labor yeah that's crazy. How is that even possible? Monkeys are pretty smart. Uh, but they just got a factory full of them, like well, working them on the supply line. Look, yeah, I don't agree with using them, but I think the um, thought was likely, you know, it's it's free. Um, they don't have yeah. to pay salaries, uh, yeah. and it's good that they stopped because it, it probably isn't affecting Costco's bottom line, you know, very much. Like getting rid of them, and it's just bad luck for PR and stuff. Costco was like not the first one to do it either i think they were supplying to walmart walgreens uh, really? a bunch so do you know what was, the brand was the thai distributor 
Yeah. Or the brand. I don't know what the brand was. It was some sort of coconut milk. But they said if you look for the coconut milk, you're not going to find it. Uh, uh, I hmm. believe the PETA, which is like the PETA. PETA, it's the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, roughly. Yep. I think that's what it's called. Um, the president was like, no shopper wants to buy something from chained monkeys plucking coconuts like yeah. machines. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going on, but it was <laughs> a crazy headline to read. So the Southeast Asia it reminds me of a Always Sunny episode with, with Frank, if <laughs> everyone knows that show. That reminds me of something that he would do. We and he's are, a fictional character. We are in hot water again for my third one. Uh, this week, Trump said, and I quote, if we went on Tuesday, you are going to see a stock market that goes like a rocket ship. Yeah, he uh, <laughs> had no idea Trump was so active on financial Twitter. Yeah, he, he definitely, his burners were following us because he saw those rocket ship, uh, anti-rocket ship as, tweets. As a podcast of the people, I think <laughs> it's best that we denounce rocket ship emojis. Yeah, I'm an anti-rocket ship podcast. That's. I'm also an anti-eyeball and anti- I'm a hypocrite not, in that regard. I've done, I've done the eyeballs, the ticker and the eyeballs. Yeah, rocket ships are number one. I've probably used eyeballs before, but they annoy me when it's just like price target raised. Oh, eyeballs. Oh, cool. Uh, and what's the other one? There's one more. Oh, the the, the, the line going up and to the right, the, the graph. Oh, yeah, hypocrite there again as well. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, what do you have? Okay, Instagram influencers that are humans. Um, I guess there's some computer generated accounts uh with that just make like i mean computer generated typically women that have 300,000 followers like um, fake people yeah it's like a computer generated avatar um i'm not sure exactly how it works but they have a ton of followers and i think i'll steal this joke from hipster trader he said is that a non gap or gap daily active user measure um but I mean, I just said that because it's kind of funny. It's also a little bit weird that someone that's not a real human has 300,000 followers um, based on their looks. And it also makes me think, I mean, there's always the talk about Facebook, you know, accounts being inflated. I see these type of things all the time. I'm like, what percentage of the accounts are actually real or what percentage of accounts have multiple real life users you know some people have like five different accounts it's kind of you know concerning i have seen that people can buy followers on on instagram really easily very easily i'm curious how many of the users on facebook are just from a click farm yeah, and they have a history of this in the past. I think they um, admitted that they inflated video views by like nine times just because anytime you scrolled by on Facebook, um, it counted as a view even if it was under one second or two seconds maybe. So I, I they haven't they've uh, gone on the edge of what might be legitimate and you know to their advertisers. So that's just something I'd watch out for. I'm not a I know I've been. I'm on the other side of the Facebook. Everyone seems to be a Facebook bull now, but there's just some things out there that concern me. I'd say it's still split, but uh, what's your second one? Okay. One sec. Let me load it up. Oh, airlines. Now, this was a stat I saw. Amazon said that either this year – yeah, okay, just during the pandemic, so probably starting in March, they've saved already $1 billion in travel expenses. I think – I was just thinking of – of like uh, the airlines reaction with just like a gift, like cool, cool, cool. Nice. <laughs> that's good for you guys. Yeah, uh, uh, and yeah. I mean, that's not good news for the airlines. But no. think about it. That was when I guess it's different now. But Bezos, remember how he's like, yeah, we don't fly first class. I don't care for executives. Right. So I think he flies a billion dollars as non first class. Yeah. Well, he probably flies private now, but yeah. I don't think anyone's going to complain. That's just <laughs> I don't know the airlines. I like Alaska. I never probably own an airline. And I guess we did talk about that a little bit with Bill. Uh, But it just seems like the business travel is never, I hate to say never, but never going to recover. And that's just, the businesses are just going to be smaller and they're going to have a lot more debt. I mean, who who wants to own these at all? I think probably we're going to see a lot of consolidation. I, I think business travel in some regard will come back. It won't be to levels that it was before. So it's just going to be smaller businesses and maybe maybe less businesses. Maybe, yeah. God, I don't know. It's just it seems like people for I guess it was a big hot topic in the spring, um, but it's still like business travel hasn't recovered. And yeah. 
What are we just going to bail out the airlines every three years? Like, come on. Do you uh, have any other ones? No, that's it. Okay. Uh, buy, sell, hold. Um, right, the theme right. this week is companies reporting on Thursday. You're not going to like these companies. Oof. Uh, it's Uber, GM, and Regeneron. Regeneron, is, uh, correct me, is Regeneron a vaccine company? Yeah. You haven't seen that commercial? No. Nah. Or the, like, Trump edit video? Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, I think. He, like, touted him after he was uh, cured <laughs> or God. cleared of COVID. Right, right. But are they a vaccine or a treatment? I think they're a therapeutic. They're a therapy thing type deal. It's not like a vaccine. Um, I'm staying away from those. I hate those. All of companies. them? Not those kind. Com- I mean, it's just. You got to buy, sell, hold something. It's just a, yeah, it's just a, it's um, what is it? It's just Russian roulette, you know? One of them is going to just. Yeah. One of them know, might You can't hit. lose all your capital. Yeah. I mean, GM and Uber suck too. Um, I guess I'd marry GM just because we're on Cruise. the anti-Tesla. Right. Yeah, they got Cruise. Um, we think that Tesla is way overhyped. So, if Cruise is successful, I think that could be great. Although auto industry sucks, and then but Uber is just like such if, a bad business. If Tesla does poorly, that doesn't mean GM does well. So, well, uh, yeah, it's not a it's not a winner. You know what I mean? I like, know it's market it's not, share. It's not necessarily zero sum. There's so many different companies. Yeah, it's true. I mean, yeah, there's Ford and Toyota and Daimler and um, VW. Yeah, I know, but it's yeah. it's just one less. Uh, company out there uh i mean gosh uber is so bad though i might have to no, not kill him sorry excuse me hold on um hold uber even hey. though i think it's a dead business too i think gm and well i don't know regeneron this is this is a tough one i'm, gonna, just, I'm gonna buy regeneron uh, I, guess. I will play russian roulette in that regard <laughs> and then i'm gonna marry gm i i'm expecting wait, wait hold sorry yeah yeah What's... hold gm and then sell uber I'm confused here. Yeah, but Whatever. Uber, I think, is – God, it's so bad. I mean, if you look at those numbers, those net losses, the cash outflow, The mind-boggling part to me is that they don't seem concerned with losses. Yeah, or like, just to be a bit of profitable. Well, I mean, I guess your cash flow is fine, but it's just going to be either, one, a terrible investment that you're paying all in stock um, for your expenses and you're going to get diluted, or it, you're just going to go out of business. I mean, your growth is slowing. It's – it's terrible. They're like, yep, we lost two point two billion this quarter, but we saw a lot of optimism, and we only have, you know, we have about four quarters of our burn rate left. But you yeah, know, and uh, hold we on, sh- we should get adjusted even to profitable by twenty end of twenty twenty one, which isn't real profitability, but you know, we're gonna say it is. Yeah. All right. Um, anecdotal evidence this week. Do you have multiple or just one? Uh, I have one, and I have, and I have no idea what it is. Okay, so I'll go first then. I saw a chart this week with the 28 companies that have had higher than an 18% compounded annual growth rate for more than 30 years. Oh. Which of these three companies was not one of them? Okay, wow. Electronic Arts, Charles Schwab, and Walmart. Schwab. No. Wow, really? Walmart. On a 30-year – Schwab's been bad the last decade, but it's Walmart. EA and Schwab have had plus eighteen percent. I knew e- I knew EA was one because um, we've researched them a lot. But I don't think Schwab's had a great last decade. Though. Yeah, I guess the two decades before were kind of their heyday. And you oh, can kind of compensate for a bad decade with really yeah. good decades prior. But, but Walmart, Walmart I what believe, is it? Just a little bit below, or was the? I imagine it was just below eighteen percent over the last thirty years. I don't know. It wasn't on the chart. Yeah, so. I know that they were a high flyer in the seventies, eighties, and early nineties. So maybe they got a little bit overvalued. Um, in the last twenty years, they've kind of you know fulfilled that valuation. All sort right. of like a Netflix type deal or something. What was your anecdotal? Okay, uh, this is just kind of a funny anecdote from this newspaper. I want to see what you think here. Brady can also he uses China. this app, um, so he may. Uh, be nodding in agreement. It says, Paul, a startup founder in New York, says he and his staff are less stressed since they started microdosing, which is microdosing LSD or mushrooms, uh, but he couldn't be totally sure about the cause and effect. He thinks it may have also been project management app Asana, which they started using at the same time. So correlation or causation. Is no. microdosing the new SaaS? Uh, yeah, I'll take microdosing over Asana. I hate this Asana app. Brady, Brady <laughs> always tries to make us use it here, and it's it's uh, fine. <laughs> you I don't have it. to use it, <laughs> but I'm guessing the least organized of the three. Um, yeah, that's it for me. Is that all you have? Yeah, but okay. I just thought that's funny that these guys think that. Yeah, I'm been microdosing. Maybe that's why I'm. That's probably why I'm way more organized. You know. Actually, you know what? I think I have another one. Okay. I've thought about this. I think Instagram 
could be a competitor to some of the like match groups, but not the actual Instagram. I think Facebook could spin off uh, Instagram has. like some sort of adjacent Instagram dating product. Yeah, Instagram's basically, from what I hear, someone that's not on there that it has a lot of basically the dating features for free already. You know, you just yeah. message people. Um, but Facebook itself seems a little bit. I don't want to say ancient because I know a lot of people still use it, but it's got the older crowd. I don't think Facebook itself has the brand to compete with a Tinder or Hinge, but Instagram, definitely. Although I don't know what but stuff they, because they've been of what, saying that for a while, though. Yeah, I think, I mean, as a match group bowl, um, I wouldn't be too concerned with it unless, but the thing is they still might steal market share and they're just monetizing off of people by just selling them ads. So it's not like the same exact product, but the functionality that would be on a match group product or any other or a bumble product is just being done on instagram for free yeah. all right well that's gonna do it today thank you guys for listening uh what are all the disclosures we gotta say here oh, oh uh, the we're not financial advisors right yeah we're not financial advisors anything we say or discuss here on chit chat money is not formal advice or recommendation oh check out our youtube page we do videos now and it's been uh it's, it's been, been growing yeah, pretty it's been fast doing well and then uh, you can email us, chitchatmoneypodcast at gmail.com if you got any show recommendations. Uh, always tweet at us as well. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.